You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success and now the founder of whitetail landscapes your host john teeter hi i'm john teeter whitetail landscapes this is maximize your hunt welcome back this is going to be part two on the first episode we talked about logging and timber sales we're going to get more into the logging some of the processes and issues and i want to lead off not getting into specific topic per se but talking a little bit about kind of the building blocks of this whole business that i have and i wanted to kind of portray a couple key components of how i view my business and the community around me that does this type of work those that have interest in this type of work and the building blocks are really simple and this is a little bit left field and i i i want to bring this up because i've been thinking more about you know, how we approach things and our attitude and, and the significance of, you know, managing habitat for deer, you know, emphasizing strategic hunting, those type of things. And the first thing I start with is building a community of people around you that enjoy this, this lifestyle. That's a really important thing. Uh, Josh Stryker, who will come on in a little bit, is one of those individuals in my life that enjoys. I've, I have several friends that I'm close with that have a similar lifestyle mindset. All the contributors obviously have a similar mindset. It's building community around you. It could be community, family, friends, neighbors, building a community of like-mindedness that's going to get you closer to your opportunity. So opportunity is number two. Opportunity is one of these building blocks where you're focused on what the end goal might be, potentially. Opportunity of building something, evolving something. We talk about the expediency of hiring a consultant and compacting time so you can do things quicker. One example is sometimes people hire life coaches. Sometimes people hire trainers to help them get bigger and bulkier, faster. You know, using your resources, your community drives opportunity. And the last piece of it is having fun. If this doesn't bring you joy, don't do it. And if it brings you joy in small increments, then take it in small increments. Totally left field, totally left field conversation, but something that was on my mind today, I wrote that down before the podcast and I felt like I'd share it with everybody. Those are the building blocks of my business. Those people that hire me think about those things. So I'd ask you think about those things. And I got to bring this up as well. I watched, uh, I was listening to podcasts today. I went for a run. I'm running a little bit more before hunting season. I want to stay in shape. And I was doing my run. I was listening to a podcast. And I was listening to one of the people that is, is, is well known in the industry. Extremely well known. I won't say his name. I won't even say the podcast because it doesn't matter. But there's a preach and teach piece of this that's critical. And in that conversation, I recognize that that individual where they have a PhD, whatever they have for education, 
their experience level is specific to their area, specific to their mindset and what they viewed over time. Some of those things that they suggest or recommend aren't correct. I turned off the podcast and I said, I can't listen to this anymore. He said one thing completely incorrect. And he stood by that several times in the conversation. Here's what I'm telling you all. And I, I want to say this not to be critical of that individual or a podcast or anything like that. Be critical of recommendations. I am not always right. And the people around this podcast are not always correct. Be critical. And as more you're critical, the more answers you'll find, the more wise you'll answer, you know, the more what us will get, get uh, corrected. And it's important to start thinking that way. And so I bring this up as just a mindset thing. Focus on community, opportunity, fun, and be critical. And critical in a nice way. I'll listen to the rest of the podcast, but it just makes me think deeper about certain topics. And let's be clear, we'll never know everything. All right, now we're going to get into the podcast. I wanted to start an intro like that because there's a lot on my mind today, but we've got Josh back on the line. Hey, Josh, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Good. So I just did my rant. Hopefully you enjoyed that piece of it. What's been going on? What have you been up to? Oh, uh, just trying to finish up a few jobs. Got a couple of them just come to a close. Getting getting things wrapped up with the landowners. Finished cutting trees on one, and uh, touching base with a guy. I'm in the middle of one. I kind of haven't been back there in a couple weeks, I think. So just trying to keep everything flowing. Yeah, and we've had quite a bit of rain uh, over the past week or so. In certain areas, it's been spotty. I have a client just north of us, and he didn't get the rain that we got here in Tully, where I live. It, it's kind of funny like that. Have you had a lot of rain on the job sites? It's funny. There's been one one job that's been, it got hit two, three days in a row, and the other one got a couple sprinkles, and they're yeah. maybe six miles apart. Hmm. Interesting. So it's been very interesting. Yeah, these weather fronts, you got to pay attention to them for your food plots, obviously, you know, in, in your specific discipline. So, Let's, um, so I, I have an Instagram page. If you don't follow me on Instagram, please do. I hate Instagram and I just want to be clear about that, but I, I need it for my business. I need it to reach out. I need it to kind of help market my business, but I really despise Instagram. But the nice part about Instagram, I get to connect to people. So that, that is the good part. Uh, the, the bureaucracy and some of the details of Instagram, I'm communicating through some people, even clients who are Instagram. I don't mind doing that, but it's, it's not my favorite thing. But I asked some questions this week, or I, I put out a post to say, hey, if you got any questions. So we got a few questions, and I figured we'll start with those first, Josh, and then we'll we'll kind of lead into maybe some specifics, things that we want to get into ourselves to help the, the listener base kind of grow their mindset in this area. So I'll give you some of the questions, and I'll let you respond, or I may respond, and we'll, we'll go from there. First question is, it, is it worth having a logger bring the wood to a landing site for people to bid on the logs, is that a benefit to the landowner? Yes, it is. If if you're working directly with the logger, that would be, um, unless you're you're very comfortable with your logger and just having them ship where he says we'll bring the best money. That that would be the second best option, and um, it, it gives you a real good idea of where. Uh, different mills are hitting with prices. Josh, and, would would you ahead. would you recommend doing that through like our job, for example? When we brought my job up last time, my specific property, we mm-hmm. we brought out the first load and and we kind of sorted out prices based upon that initial bid. So we kind of knew what the the pay rate was. Would you recommend doing that for every single load or individual loads? How, how do you typically handle that? Um, it kind of depends. You can do it every single load. It's a lot of work on the logger to, uh, lay out and then pick up. Um, I think if I, I can't remember if we did it two or three, I can't remember if we did two or three batches on your job. Yeah. Um, I know there was a couple different winning bidders, but I, we might've done it three times. Cause if I remember right, one guy won and then somebody else won. Yep. the other two times and we we worked it out to uh just move it direct to them yeah i remember that was our and i'm sure it, it varies depending on the you know obviously the volume but once it once it hits the ground you know and, and everybody has the opportunity to assess it each mark you know each mill is going to have a different demand for that type of wood and they're going to degrade it differently and then obviously you've got the logger or in the landowner could 
you know, evaluate that as well. And, and you have the ability to kind of assess log quality, uh, depending on the amount of mineral, uh, size of heart, you know, some of the basics principles. Um, what do you look at when you look at logs, like when you're doing the grade? I mean, when, when you, when you're looking for grade, it's, it's mo- most of your money is in your butt logs, the logs that are, that are closer to the stump, closer to the ground. Your first two logs are typically your best. And you're looking for, usually there's no limbs in those first couple logs. So you're looking at, you know, defects just in the bark. You know, sometimes it's a bump, which would be a defect. And when you get into veneers, you're looking at just defects in the, in the bark. I mean, just unsymmetrical they can be about the size of a pack of a deck of cards and you're looking at those types of things for veneer. And then you're also looking at the wood itself or mineral, or you might get some tea bark in there. And that's just defects within the wood itself, not the exterior. Okay. I think, I think we, we nailed that question. Next question is people want to hear more on finding stumpage prices and estimating standing timber. Can you kind of walk us through some of the things you might do? We talked a little bit about that in the last podcast. Yeah, so and this can be different. I'm not certain with other states, but I know here in New York State, you can get right on the New York State DEC website, and they'll give you the past dumpage reports. You can find the last couple of years, and they'll give you graphs for the last, I want to say it's like the last 20 years, and what the timber markets have been doing as far as up and down. And that's, that's the best place I've found to find the most recent stumpage prices. Yeah, that's a good, that's kind of a good bio to look past. And, you know, you can see kind of the resume over the years of what they've been paying and time of year, region specific, right? Yep. Species yep, specific. Yep. Species specific, obviously. Everything is itemized on there. Yeah. All right. Estimating standing timber. Now, we should let, let, do it the professional way because the John Teeter way was like hillbilly style. I had uh, a square and uh, I was measuring log height with a rangefinder. <laughs> uh, so what do you think of that, buddy? What do you think of that uh, for a strategy? That's uh, pretty specific. Well, I wanted to know, you know, was that log going to be 34 or 36? Okay. And yeah. my uh, records were very complete when I was working with you, but how do, how do you do it in the real world? Um. For a diameter, you can get a diameter tape, but most guys, anybody that buys standing timber, they would typically be running a Biltmore stick, and that is a stick that estimates the value in the trees on a Doyle rule scale, and you can get your diameter breast height, and you can also get, if you step back from the tree, I believe it's 66 feet. Um, you can hold the stick up a different direction, and it'll tell you how many 16-foot logs are in the tree. And, of course, if you fall somewhere in the middle, then that would be a half a log. And then you can go right down through the stick, look at your diameter and how many logs you have, and it'll give you the board footage in that tree. Sounds simple enough and probably a good tool to have, uh, certainly in your business. Anything it's else? It's a must-have. Must it's a must-have. Yeah, Absolutely. And certainly something when you're walking the landing site, or excuse me, when you're walking a, a lot with a, with the landowner, it's, you know, something me, you may want to ask about, you know, can you walk us through how you evaluate, you know, the quantity? Certainly if they're buying standing, I mean, that would be a must to me. I mean, versus the alternative is they're, you know, they're cutting everything down and, and then you're scaling everything and you're making the determination of your volume and they're, you're selling out to the, to, the, to the best bidder. I'm going to add a little bit to the question earlier because I just thought about this is, you know, if you're working with a logger, there's nothing to say that you can't look at the scaling sheets to know what the volume they purchased and ensure that the payment amount correlates specifically. You know, do a check on your logger. Now, that may not be totally understandable because the scaling sheets, the way that they measure logs and stuff like that, the volume doesn't necessarily make sense a lot of times. But if you are able to understand the math and the related payment, that could give you more clarification to make sure that nobody's taking you... Uh, you know, taking to the hopper and not being uh, honest with you, so to speak. So uh, I'll just add that to the conversation. You, have you had anybody go down that road, Josh? Because I, I think I'm a little particular compared to most. Um, it, it varies. It, I have had people, you know, as soon as the woods leaving, they, they want to see 
see what they bought. They want the footage and the dollars. You know, they might not necessarily want to check right then, but they're look. They they want to know. And most recently, I would say pretty much majority of my jobs have either been bot standing or people that just trust me and they'll ask me how's it going throughout the job and that's about it and i'll sit down with them at the end with all the numbers and and square up with them i I haven't been i haven't been questioned much lately that's good that's good that people have faith and uh you know certainly that says a lot about you all right third question and i think this is where we'll end it with questions because we probably want to talk about a few other things what is the typical timetable to expect from harvest to check in hand? And that's a, that's a bit of a loaded question. It's a good question. It's, there's a lot to that question, though. So That is a good question. Um, well, I guess hopefully I can answer, answer all of that pretty thoroughly. But I typically try to get a two-year contract whether it's a percentage or whether I buy it standing. And, and it gives me time to put that job in the best place I can. Some jobs are more of a, a summer cut job. Some jobs can only be done in the winter. Some are have really good ground and I can work them in a wetter time of year. And some of it depends on the wood quality. And then as far as... Start to finish, it depends on the size of the job. I mean, I, I work by myself, and I would say when the conditions are right on a good week, throughout the winter, I would say I'm doing about 20,000 feet a week. Um, and the summer is really hit or miss. You know, you, you can, I've only done five to 10,000 feet a week if we get, you know, a wetter week. But it's it can't really give you a, a good grasp on how long, and it, it just all depends on the job. Josh, let me bring up another topic. So let's say uh, a landowner is a little anxious, and they're taking out around, we'll just say thirty thousand feet, and you're taking out in around ten thousand increments, just round math, right? So th- three basic loads. And when you're taking out those loads, have you have instances where you're paying the landowner per load per se, rather than the full lot? So it's almost like, okay, it's itemized for this load and then the next load, then the next load. Have you had any instances like that? Yep, I have. Okay. I have. I had, I had a landowner just over the winter. He just wanted to know, he wanted to know where he was at. And I think that he had had, he's been down the road a few times and I think he's had some, um, not good situations happen and he just wanted he the first load that left he was very antsy he was right there he wanted to know um how much wood left and how much money was there and then as the job went on you know the second load i called him and let him know what had left and how much money and and he kind of he said well we'll catch up on the next one and then you know by the time the job was done i I think I owed him for, I don't know, another four or five loads. So he kind of settled down and relaxed a little bit. Yeah. And I think that's good that, you know, you know, you could step in a situation and kind of cure that issue and, and set it right for some people. Like we talked earlier, you know, there's people that have gotten burned loggers, foresters that they may have not been very uh, honest and trustworthy. So it's good to kind of uh, reinstill, you know, there, there's integrity in, in this business and in what you do specifically. So uh, commend you for that. All right. Those are the questions we're going to end with. I appreciate everybody actually submitting questions and responding to my inquiry the other day on Instagram. So thank you for doing that. And uh, I'll continue to probably do that through these podcasts just to get a little more feedback. And, and I, you know, reach out to me. You want to air a topic, you know, I'll throw it into the conversation and we'll try to be raw and real and crass and figure out, you know, the best way to answer your particular uh, question and hopefully be as correct as possible. So nobody shuts me off. All right, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into, let's see, what do we want to start with? What do you want to start with? Cause there's a couple things I want to talk about. I'm here for you, buddy. 
All right. I'm just flying by the seat of my pants here. That's great. So Josh called this podcast to talk about. So in this talk about right now, because clearly he listens to a lot of podcasts, but in this talk about right now, I want to talk about bad decisions in logging and I'm going to be critical of me. So Josh follows me sometimes. Maybe he shouldn't. Maybe he shouldn't take the jobs I recommend him going on, or maybe he shouldn't listen to me at times. He's very pragmatic and uh, aware and has good insight into things. So I've got Josh in a few pickles, and I got him in a pickle on my own property. Uh, I have got some more timber that I want to take off. I don't know if we'll ever take it off, but uh, at one point I wanted to take it off. Uh, Very hard area to get to. So I talked to my neighbor, went through my neighbor's property, he gave us permission, and we pretty much got your giant skitter almost stuck on a cold, nasty, stormy, no good, very bad day. And uh, needless to say, you had good humor about it, but inside you wanted to kill me, I'm, I'm sure. Do you remember that day? Well, I remember because I remember you telling me, oh, it's a breeze. I get, it's a piece of cake. I got it all mapped out. Just strap the machine off and I'll, I'll walk you down through there. No problems. No problems. It's always no problems with me, man. That's that's the way it goes. And and uh, I've said this before, it's grit and grace. You know, there's a little grit involved and a little grace. And sometimes we got to find the middle point. And I just figured we could just kind of grace our way right through those wet areas. Let's talk about why that didn't work. And let's talk about the problems that persisted as a result of that. So I made a decision to, I want to put bedding in a lower uh, lower portion of my property. Actually, functionally, it probably not would, wouldn't work good based upon the neighbor's hunting strategy as of recent. So probably a good reason I didn't cut it or maybe a, an afterthought for that matter. I think we were going to probably cut the area down, maybe 40 trees in a section, uh, some pretty good quality trees. And you know, to get there, we had to kind of up, down, cross some wet areas, no creeks or crossings like that, but a lot of seeps. Now, in a lot of the areas that we work on, there's rutting hazard areas or areas that have that are problematic. So time of year is critical. Josh, you brought that up last time. You know, picking the right time of year to cut a specific area, or you might have to build a bridge, or you have you might have to be a little more tactical when you go into these areas. What did you see in the failures in that equation? And be critical of me. Um, those wetter areas, some those are ones you typically want to get in the winter. If you if you get the snow off, usually you can get them to freeze. And it, it might take a day or two, but you can usually get it. And that was what we ran into on your piece. It's a hillside with springs. And there was, I don't remember how much snow was there, quite a bit, two or three feet. Yeah. Yep. And just, you know, the, when you have that much snow and you have water coming out of the ground, it's never going to freeze. So snow creates basically a blanket. And in order to remove the blanket, you know, to, to clear those areas out, that potentially, depending on the temperature, decreases the rutting hazard situation. So I'll give you a basic, basic rule. And, and I'm going to dumb this down when we go a little bit further into this topic. But generally speaking... Generally speaking, wet soils or wetter areas, you're going to want to do those in the wintertime. Those are typically like uh, soils that are more medium textured soils. A good example might be uh, as you get kind of down the scale, we've got clay soils. Uh, Those are definitely fine soils. And then as you kind of lean back, you're kind of getting to the silty, loomy soils. And then sand, um, which really has good infiltration. The drainage is pretty good. You know, those are kind of all time of the year type soils. Uh, Most of the time those are done in the summertime. But the soil type is a consideration when you're doing these layouts and when you're choosing areas to go into. Josh, what have you experienced? Because you do this all the time. What areas do you tend to stay away from in the wintertime that you prefer in the summertime? That kind of example, you kind of just actually answered that question. But what's your strategy normally? Yeah, you just said it. I mean, there's really no area I really stay away from, per se, in the wintertime. Um, it's really more a summertime strategy. Yeah. Because our, our winters have been narrowed down to, I mean, what do we have, two good months? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the bottom line is, you know, like medium to fine textured soil, clay, loomy, silt loom, 
silty clay, uh, you know, heavy clay. Okay, those are more winter. Okay, winter. We were going to have those areas kind of freeze over, and then as we decrease, you know, this is this is this kind of more coarse, the, the sandy sandy loom type soils. Now I have sandy loom on portions of my property. I have silty loom on portions of my property. I've got a lot of diverse soil types. I've got clay in a couple areas, so it's trying to look at the the soil type with my clients. I look at rutting hazards. Uh, I look at hydrology, you know, the, the ability of the soil's infiltration abilities. So I'm looking at those as characteristics, a part of food plotting, a part of logging, a part of access trails that all kind of plays into the equation of laying out a property. Now, I know that might sound a little sophisticated and I, it is, right? Because you got to have some awareness on what is what and what's good and what's bad. But generally speaking, you've got to take a more in-depth look um, in these layouts. Now, this is like, this is a secret to my success. This is one of the things we talk about in the podcast. Josh knows this stuff because every day he's got to go in there and figure out, okay, what can I do where? What is the easiest path? And look at this. This is what I was trying to make fun of myself earlier. I said, Josh, it's going to be easy. Come down. We'll just blast through it. Chop up some trees. I got my big saw. Let's, let's rock and roll. And he gets stuck. So as the non-practitioner, I need to rely on Josh as the implementation guy to figure these things out. And uh, I just wanted to kind of make fun of me and be critical of my decisions. Like I said earlier, not everybody's right. So, Josh, any more comments on my stupidity? No, no, I mean, I, I knew when I drove down into that hemlock swamp that it wasn't going to be good. Yeah, and you should have said, why am I listening to this guy? Pretty much. Well, at least we can be honest with each other and make fun of my poor decisions. But what we learned, right? And then from that, you know, you're more critical of me and I'm more specific now. Uh, but I've been a little bit better. I have done better now going forward. Years later, I'm a little more advanced in some of my thought process. And hopefully from this, people people think a little more deeply. So rutting hazards. Have you got into situations where... You know, you're running over an area over and over and over again, and you got these big, deep ruts uh, because the weather's changed. Maybe you're mudding season. The landowner says they want it done. Have you had some issues related to that type of stuff and, and any related drama? I have. It was really, it was partially my own fault. I had looked at a job in the summertime. I knew it needed to be cut in the winter. Um, it was wetter kind of like your property generally wet to begin with and there was a whole bunch of just swampy open areas and when i showed up to do the job in january i drove through i had the perfect skid trail mapped out in my mind and i got out into it and it just happened to be one of those swamp holes and i looked around and looked around and looked around and i could not find another way around it so i ended up having to I actually drove, drove tops into that one, you know, nice branchy tops and just back them down in and it froze in. So we had jobs that you didn't work on, uh, but I had clients this year that, and I'm sure they're listening to the podcast, uh, feller bunchers, they had big, huge machines on their properties, you know, cutting. And I love, uh, I love that style to some degree because you can do like really good layout with the tops, right? And yep. um, it's it's really kind of, it becomes very efficient. But those machines are heavy. I mean, what's what, what's a typical feller buncher? I know they're, you know, they're much heavier than, than your skidding equipment. Much heavier. Yeah. Um, I know my, my biggest machining is pushing 30,000 pounds. Um, I want to say my... Don't quote me on this. I don't keep up on the filler bunchers. I'm not. I don't. I'm not into them. But I think his is somewhere around fifty thousand pounds. I want to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's not surprising. So you know the compaction as a result of using a machine like that may be far greater. And like to your point earlier, when they're doing those layouts and selecting the areas, I mean they're they're running over tops or using the slash debris as as, as bridging equipment. That brings up another conversation. Um, actually, let me stick. Let me stick with compaction for a second. So, have you had or have you come up with any strategies that you think work to handling compaction issues? And I'll talk a little bit about what I've thought about. What you know, when when you run over an area on a constant basis and you've got all that compaction, what what are some good ideas for landowners to kind of relieve that situation? 
the only thing that I do, I mean, if I know I got to cross the swamp, I'm putting crane mats down. Mm-hmm. And that just handles the weight of the machine. And uh, the only other thing from that, you can quarter away it, which is just laying logs down, which is the same thing as a crane mats, just takes more manpower to do it, more hours. Um, and you, you can put treetops down, sometimes works, depends on how soft it is. And that's only if you have to cross there. What about the remediation? So let's let's say you're traveling across a farm field, and there's compaction, almost creating a, a, a you know a, a permanent road, and it's it becomes compacted and it becomes a runway for you know uh, water to travel down it. Uh, what what are some strategies there? Typically, in a scenario like that, when we were done, would be I would put water bars in with the dozer to get the water to drain off the roadway. Have you also considered either adding dirt or coming in with deep tillage and uh, trying to remediate some of the soil compaction? I've never had to. Well, let me bring in my perspective on things. So. So when actually when my property and uh, other clients may have experienced this is, um, you know, I planted some trees. I broke up one of my fields and the road, the skid road out of one of my fields, you know, I think we went right through the center of the field. There was quite a bit of compaction. Our time of year, everything we did was correct, but there's still a lot of compaction. So it's funny because I went and I actually put in a screen. I was doing kind of like a, a screening shelter belt, belt type style. I was doing a field conversion and I was breaking up a field in half and I was planting willows and I was trying to stick willows in the ground and I couldn't get the willow cutting very deep in the ground. And I was like, what the heck? You know, I, I hadn't thought we had that much compaction. Well, what I had to do is I had to go in there and rototill uh, that particular area to aerate it. Because what happens a lot of times when you have compaction you start to lose the volume, the porosity of that soil. So there's decreased oxygen. And then if your oxygen levels get so low in the soil, things can't grow. And also you can't stick things in the ground either. There's not the activity, you know, because of the soil. So there's not, there's not a lot of activity that's going on in the soil. And as a result, you won't get things to grow in those particular areas or the plants that do grow in those areas are very familiar with compacted soils. Plantain's a good example. So there's some strategies there. There's some cultivating tools that you can use, deep tillage tools that you can use to type to air it so you can add soil onto those areas. So it's adding soil onto a hard pan. Not always the best advice, but those are those are options for you. So I thought thought I'd add to that, Josh, because I've had to deal with this complication on some clients' properties when they've had some issues. But any thoughts on anything I said? Good thoughts. Okay, good thoughts. Yeah, and I, I agree good because the, the bottom line is is the harder the ground, uh, the less infiltration we get. And, of course, you know, that will lead to runoff issues. And your suggestion with water bars uh, makes makes a lot of sense. And the, uh, the oxygen discussion is also kind of critical in that equation. All right, fun topics. Uh, let's talk about layout because we said that in the last. We we're going to talk a little bit about layout. So you get to do the work. You're coming in, you're marking trees, and then you're overlaying maybe like a, a habitat plan for deer, and you're looking at the habitat plan in concert with a logging plan. How does that kind of construct in your mind? How do you kind of put the two and two together? Because they could be kind of different, right? Because in some cases, you're selecting certain trees for harvesting purposes, and that may or may not correlate with where we want bedding or where we want food. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts there? I mean, really, as far as the, the overlay, I mean, you, you want to cut, you're cutting the mature trees out. And so if you're doing it on a deer habitat plan, you got to kind of look at the layout of the plan, where the bedding areas are going to be for clearing food plots. If you're clearing food plots, you're, you're taking anything of any value. And then you move into the bedding areas. You want to cut all that bigger timber anyway, so it leaves you the smaller stuff to work with to do the fine work. It also gives you some tops. You can move around 
put them where you want them as far as your travel, um, or visual barriers. And, and then in the areas where you don't necessarily want the deer, I'm still doing, I'm doing more of a select cut in those areas, still cutting some of the trees, whether they're mature or they need to be cut. Maybe they're past maturity and they're going the other way and, and dragging the tops right out of there so that you're leaving, you're not leaving anything for the deer. It's a undesirable area for the deer. So what I'm getting out of this is if you don't think about the harvesting element and you're just focusing on, I'm going to go in there and hinge cut a bunch of trees and I'm going to have bedding and maybe you don't even have any value. You know, so let's take that out of the equation. You walk into a job and you're like, all right, there's very few trees of significant value. We may want to regenerate a stand. We may want to do some variable thinning. You can start right on a habitat plan. But when it, and, and then also think kind of the timber management side of it, you know, doing maybe a TSI job or, a, you know, more, you know, like I said, a more in depth cut to, to regenerate a stand because everything's ugly looking per se. But then when you get these properties that have timber value, you almost select that out first, but then you concentrate, you're almost saying in the bedding areas and where those are located and what timber you need to remove from those specific areas. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Correct. Okay. And that's a, I did miss one point. I mean, if you're in an area where, um, say there's a younger stand and there's not, maybe the trees are on the bottom end of maybe you could cut them just reaching a marketable standpoint. Uh, even at that point, I'm going through and doing some TSI. I'm just cutting down all the, all the bad trees and leaving all the good ones just to get some some texture in the ground some so to eliminate the openness of the of the timber stand so you're not necessarily cutting the big mature stuff you're doing whatever's best for the woods but also trying to get get your deer habitat land done as well so in my plan specifically and this is another strategy is i'm employing specific cutting techniques in various areas around and within bedding areas. So the bedding area may have a certain strategy. It may have a volume. It may have a sunlight percentage. It it may have some criteria. And those areas around that may have various other examples or other methodologies to cutting those areas. And again, this is in a woodlot area. And and that all coincides with a movement, a plan, you know, overarching transition strategies, there'll be transition zones, social zones. So there's a lot of uh, intricacies that go into the plan that Josh has to consider when he's doing the layout. I will say that the correlation from the plan to the action is the one thing that a lot of people miss. And, And I've said this on the podcast multiple times. If you hire a consultant, let's just say you're hiring me, for example, and you have the ability to afford another day of work, or you're willing to have Josh come out and do the work, or whomever consults you to actually show you, and you can run with it, that's a great idea, because that gets the ball rolling. That's your, earlier, that's your community. You're building your community around your opportunity, and you're starting to understand how to attack a particular problem, and give yourself kind of a solution and strategy to it. Because there's way more to this, there's intricacies to a, you know, Josh, we build like requirements into the equation. We're going to cut these trees. This is why we're cutting this tree. This is that why that tree stays. I mean, there's real strategy that goes into every single tree that you're cutting in that environment. And I think it's it's a hard translation. And I've had opportunity to look at other consultants' maps and recognize that everyone's going to approach things slightly different. But there needs to be the implementation tied to that. And that's where a lot of people get lost. And, and I know you're seeing that in, in the field, right? They're having a hard time right. taking a map and, and starting to apply the techniques. Any thoughts on that topic? It can be hard to take a map and put it on the ground. I mean, I know we've ran into a few situations where it looks great on the map and you get on the ground and you just, you, you got to tweak things a little bit. It's not exactly where it's going to be on the map. Maybe you have to move a food plot or a bedding area. I, I think I've moved the food plot as much as a hundred yards just because it didn't, I mean, looking at a soil map, the soil looks great, but you get in there 
and there's drainage off of a pond and it was just it was too wet it wouldn't have worked yeah all right let's uh let's talk logging roads and i think that's probably a pretty critical strategy something that should be built into a plan now when i'm doing my design plans i build an access roads which access roads are correlated with equipment and that equipment could be logging equipment so when you're thinking about your layout you need to think about some specifics from a logging standpoint. Josh, when you're creating your logging roads on a property, what is your basic fundamental strategy for, just generally speaking, what what technique do you, or what, what considerations do you have when you're creating a logging road? For a logging road, I mean, it's, it's you got to cut the trees down, you got to skid them out, and you got to get them to the landing. And every job, depending on, how it lays out, whether it's sloped away from the landing, whether it's sloped towards the landing, or maybe it's dead flat. I mean, you have to approach it all differently. Um, say the hillside sloped towards the landing. So you have to, if it's fairly steep, you have to have one main, main road going up the hill, and you have to have side cuts going across to get all the timber. And on one like that, you have to, start close to landing you have to start on the bottom that way as you fell trees they're all falling downhill and you just work your way up the hill now in some of those instances where you're worried about grade right the related slope um maybe as towards the bottom it may be a little bit wetter potentially you know so you're thinking about those things when you're you're starting to make your decisions but i would say generally the path of least resistance tends to be the most normalized or used strategy when it comes to logging roads. Would that be generally too true? Yeah, that, that, that's a good theory. I okay. mean, a lot of times I find myself having to go the opposite direction that I need to end up just to path of least resistance. I mean, that makes the most sense. Sometimes you got to go the long way around is the best way around. The other piece of this is when you're doing the layout, and this is like my thought process, is you've got your logging trails that get you to areas you need to be to take out the timber. And if you can correlate those specific trails as maintenance or work trails, they compound on their purpose. And I think that's really important when you're starting to think about your layout. Then there's another piece of it. You know, do those trails allow you to get to areas where you can do the work that you need to do? But maybe those trails lead to food plots um, or maybe those trails lead to hunting access areas. So you typically start with your logging trails. And then what you may need to do as a result of those potentially is you may need to block some of those particular trails because deer like easy pass. They like to go down a road that's open maybe not too open, but open enough, and they don't have debris in their face, they can see. So sometimes you have to cut off those logging roads, put fencing up. Um, And I know you've had to do this many times, Josh, you go in an area and you're cutting a logging road, you have to block it off. Anything, any thoughts on that? The the easiest way I've found is put a top there. I mean, after when I'm done cleaning up all the logging roads, when I'm done getting all the timber out, get all the roads cleaned up. I'll just put a treetop there wherever it needs to be. Right? You know, sometimes they're scattered and um, that correlates with the, the habitat plan as far as the deer travel. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that is some of those trails that we, we like to create deer trails by hand and we like to have those trails be a little bit more, we'll, we'll say smaller in size you know, ideally you can run a, a two track, you know, two track size ATV, UTV down those particular trails. That's kind of the size I'm going for where these access trails or maintenance trails, they're at least 10 feet wide. Normally speaking, they're at least 10 feet wide, if not 12 feet. And, and that yep. would be like minimum for some of the equipment that we're talking about. What do you think about that? Well said. Okay, good. All right. So at least we think the same. And then the last piece of it is thinking about access trails associated with hunting locations. So picking the tree location out in accordance with the plan, knowing that like, Josh, don't cut these 
four trees, like we'll mark them off because they're potential stand sites. And typically in stand locations, you want at least two, three, four available trees to hang a tree stand in to provide cover um, or you're creating cover. Um, and, and those things are important in the layout. So you have those pre-marked and then you're creating access to those areas and you're either using, and we talked about access in another podcast. If you have not listened to that, that's a pretty good podcast with me and Shippy. Go listen to that podcast thinking about, you know, how the deer will or will not travel down those access trails and then how they will or will not travel on the maintenance trails or, you know, the other trails that we talked about earlier, the, the logging road specifically. So it's, it's starting to think how to block these things out. Any thoughts on any of that, Josh? No, I mean, just your, your access points, you gotta be, you gotta try to access where the deer are not traveling if you can. So it's almost like this healthy medium of you're bringing the deer to you or bringing them to an area that you can hunt them in, but you're not bringing them close enough where you're going to intercept them, you know, or they're going to cut your track or cut your trail. I mean, that's pretty much the general goal of the design layout. And it, it really is that simple. I mean, I don't think of it as any more complicated. Now there's other things that play in that equation of how's the ground slope where your thermals are going to go, right? How wind travels through areas that are cut. I mean, there's, there's, there's more that goes into that equation, but generally speaking, we just don't want to intercept them or get them so close that, that we're going to create, you know, a negative uh, reaction from the deer. That's, that's pretty much the general goal. Yep. All right. Moving right along. What do you want to talk about? Anything that's on your mind? We've covered a lot of it. We did. I got one more thing. So you go in and you run a dozer, a skitter. Right, we talked about the Fowler Buncher earlier. A lot of times when you're going to those areas, you create a lot of ground disturbance. And we talked about trying to minimize compaction. And the benefit of creating ground disturbance is you kind of remove leaf litter. Uh, the mineral soil mixes up. The smaller seed can germinate that's resident uh, or in the future that drops. And likely because of the equipment being in those areas uh, and we'll call that scarification or scraping the ground those are opportunities for plants to generate and as a result of that we have food food for deer and it seems really basic but it's really critical to the overall equation now Josh when you cut an area you know your equipment's you're very tactful on how you get into an area and you know you got to be efficient but have you seen in a lot of those areas, um, you know, quick regeneration? And have you seen in some of the areas where you've had equipment, you know, where you have scarified the ground or scraped the ground up, you see uh, uh, plants starting to develop in those areas, maybe either at a faster rate or plants that normally wouldn't generate would generate. Have you seen that? Uh, I have. <laughs> All right. Which I think well, I, had, I had to think for a minute because I typically don't go back to my jobs, you know, a year or two later usually a long time after that. I know, I know a couple strategies here. First off, burning areas in some states you can and uh, cannot burn. Some areas I've seen guys going with backpack blowers. Be smart when you do that. Moving the leaf litter. I've seen people throw out seed for turkeys. I've seen animals like turkeys clear off ground, right? They're looking for bugs. They're bugging. So, you know, there's natural ways to create the same type of environment, but the only way those plants will grow is with sunlight. So you need to create that environment for them. So removing the overstory is critical to, to that equation. So I would suggest people think about the volume of sunlight once they cut an area and what will happen as a result of that. Pretty basic, but pretty important. All right. Let me talk about a problem. Damage. I hear this a lot. Damaging trees coming out of the woodlots. How do you approach that? What are some strategies you'd recommend? That's a loaded question. As a logger, there's it's almost impossible to cut a whole woodlot and not have some sort of residual damage. So, I mean, for me, how I approach it, is you want your trees at least at a 45 degree angle to your skid roads where you're where you're getting them from i cut with a cable skidder 
So I don't have I don't have to back right up to the trees. I got a hundred foot of cable. So like on a hillside per se, I'll drop whatever two, three, four trees, and get them. You want them at least in a forty-five where you're pulling them up to, and once you get them to the machine, as you're skidding out, until you get on your main skid road, you want to do as little turning as possible, and you want to keep the trees as low as possible, and that that helps with the scarring, but. You know, every every time, every time you pull a tree up, you risk damaging a tree, and sometimes you gotta pull ahead, back up. You know, you might have to rehook a choker, and there's just a there can be a lot of work that goes into not leaving a lot of residual damage. And your your main skid roads and where you see most of it. If you have a, I know on your piece there's a pretty good switchback coming up out of the bottom, and it's it's inevitable. On something like that, and you just try to keep your hips low to the ground. That helps swing the trees around, and you still scar the tree up. But it's something like that. It's a, it's inevitable. It's gonna happen. Now, Josh, are you more worried about? So you're worried about the residual stand, the trees that remain, and maybe in some cases you'll take some of the trees along the trail as a result of that. Would that be might that might be the case? Yeah, if it's, if it's something where I'm working with a landowner on a percentage, if it's something that has been damaged pretty severely then then i'll then i'll cut it and the, the landowner can get the money out of the tree you know and sometimes you're fighting gravity all the time you can't you only have so much control over a tree i mean i've broke tops off of you know a nice 15 inch maple that i was trying to save and just you know gravity took over tree spun off the stump whatever whatever it might be and at that point, I'll I'll take that tree at that point so that the landowner can get the money and out of that tree because it'll just end up dying. Yeah. Now, and maybe I missed this in the in the conversation. So if you're pulling trees out and you're worried about potential damage uh, as it relates to the bark that's on the trees that you're already taking, do you are you that concerned about that? I'm thinking about uneven ground with a lot of rocks. You know, does that degrade the, the log at the landing site uh, after you bring it down there? And does that, that hurt your potential money opportunity? It can. It's more, it, it, it's a time thing. I mean, if you take the bark off, say a really nice hard maple, you know, you scuff the bark off, you know, 12, 16 inches off the ground. It's not going to kill that tree. If that tree is getting cut in the next 20 years, you, you might lose a little bit on the bottom. But above that, it, it, there's no damage. All right. So there's kind of a balancing act that you, you play when you're doing your logging and thinking about your trails and getting trees out. And then obviously you go back in and clean up the logging roads when is most appropriate for that. Because I know that doesn't always happen immediately after you finish a logging job and obviously if you have some time because your contracts allow that typically what, yeah. what's your strategy around that just the weather i mean that's that's part of why i like two-year contracts i tell any guy i cut in the winter time i'll be back in the spring or summer whenever it dries up you know some sometimes around here that might not be till june or july and um it's just all you can't clean it up if it's wet it just you're you're fighting mud so i'll wait till it dries out and then you can do a nice job on the cleanup yeah so i would say for anybody who's drafting a contract that's you know that's spelled right out that you know that you're overseeing or i mean maybe there's a forest overseeing or you know you're working with your logger directly to make sure that the cleanup is at the appropriate time and they come back to do that that's part of the contract you could have withhold. Um, you could have some dollars held back uh, to ensure that that job gets done. You could put a value associated with that, you know, a couple thousand, you know, whatever the specifics may be um, that you're able to hold uh, in your purse temporarily until, you know, that's that's uh, that work is performed. Just, just a thought process there that you might want to go through in your contract. All right. I think I'm out of ideas right now, so I'm going to lean on you. Anything else you want to talk about on this podcast? I mean, we've covered more than I've 
I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I think we've covered more in these two podcasts on our specific business and how we operate and strategy than I, I think I've ever heard on any other habitat hunting podcast, at least at this point. Um, I mean, there's way more specifics that, that, that I haven't explained or I think we could talk for days about this stuff. Is there anything that you, you feel is critical? I'm trying to think if we missed anything. The only, the only thing I can think of is there is a couple different scales that guys buy on. And right here where we're at, it's pretty much all Doyle. There is, um, there's one company I can think of. Well, two companies I can think of that run on a Scribner scale. Um, in my opinion, that's probably a little bit closer to the actual board footage in the tree on the, on the smaller stuff. And as, as it gets bigger, it, it's not much of a difference. It's about the same as the Doyle. And that is one thing to consider um, when you're, when you're selling wood, if you're working with a logger and he's talking about pricing, the, the Scribner would be, the Scribner is typically a lower dollar per thousand than the Doyle. And that's just due to board footage. There's they're they're gonna have more board footage on Scribner than they will on Doyle. So the price per thousand will be a little bit less. And there is there is the international scale, but that's really that's just softwood. I don't I don't really see that very often. When we have like I guess softwoods um or low grade timber in our areas, how are those typically sold by the ton? Uh, yes, by the ton. Okay. The the low grade, you know, your firewood and scrag is typically, I shouldn't say typically, but can be sold on the ton by weight. Now, I feel like in the Midwest they sell it in cords, but I could be wrong. I forget what the scale or how they use that. Or I, I've heard that, and I don't I don't know exactly how that works. Not our area that we work in, but I think that that is the case. Well, who knows? You know, maybe we'll be out west cutting jobs or overseeing jobs at some point. Not sure about that, but likely on the horizon more than likely for us. All right. I think that's good. I'm not sure I have much to add. I think this is, like I said earlier, this pretty well-rounded podcast. I feel like we've hit a lot of key points. Anything you want to say to anybody out there listening? How do they get a hold of you, Josh? Because we didn't say that last time. They obviously can get a hold of me to, to get a hold of you. Um, you work obviously directly with my clients and, you know, normally we have a property management plan before you get involved with my clients, but you know, we, you are available to cut timber locally. Um, if there is a deer management piece of it, we typically work that out into the equation, but how do they get a hold of you? You could email me at jslogging2330 at gmail. Awesome. And if anybody needs that information, uh, I'll have it in the notes and you can, obviously get a hold of me and I'll put you in touch with Josh. Um, you know, Josh and I work together on jobs, so I appreciate, you know, his expertise and, and I'm happy that we had this talk about today, buddy. <laughs> you know, I don't know why you got to pick on me like that. I was having a moment. You were, you were. And he's like, Hey, I want to do the next podcast. And, uh, or you said, talk about, I want to do the next talk about. And, uh, I'm not really sure what, what we should get into. And, and I was just laughing because, you know, this is this is the next age. You know, I also will say I'm thinking, and I haven't confirmed this, but I'll, I'll bring this up if people have interest in this. I was contacted uh, a week ago, and there there's a speaking engagement in September. Uh, there's quite a few people going to it. They asked me to be a keynote there. I haven't done a lot of speaking engagements, and I, I think I'm going to go. I think, Josh, you might go as well. We're going to bring maybe some of our mounts, and uh, I think I'll tell a few sob stories, you know, get people crying for me because I'm just this wizard up there of conversation. But, you know, I I, I think that I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll introduce it probably in the next podcast if I for sure am going to do that speaking engagement or not. But I, I think you might you might attend attend that with me as well so you can you could meet both of us. I may invite maybe Tim Russell. He's a local guy. He's been on this podcast to kind of come and attend. Um, so I think that's in the Canadagua area, Canadagua, New York. If you are interested in speaking engagements and telling stories and, and those things and, and real strategy, 
you know, reach out to me. Um, I'm considering doing more of that because there, there has been interest in this area. And I think it's a good opportunity for people to learn, you know, learn from my mistakes or learn from my wins. And I'm, I'm happy to share all that type of stuff. So, you know, uh, more to come on that. And, and hopefully Josh will, will be there if he can find the time because he likes to go on vacation a lot. All right, buddy. We're at the end of our rope here. I think you're good. I'm good. Thank you for being a part of this thing. And I think you, uh, I think you're good at the talk about, so we'll have you on again. Thanks. I appreciate that. That was a good talk about. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.